to Mark chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 13 and work our way through verse 17. Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, start with verse 13 here. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for your word, your holy, set apart word to us. This is your revelation. And so this morning, we look to it to speak to us, Lord, as we preach, as we hear, as we respond. Lord, may your spirit, the one who wrote and inspired the writing of these words, the true author of this text, Lord, be revealed here this morning in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever wondered the purpose of something? Maybe it's an event. Maybe it's a device or a theme. But you ever thought to yourself, what is the real purpose of that? And we always, as humans, look for purpose. And sometimes people may say, well, what is the purpose in Jesus' coming? Why did He come? What reason did He give for His coming? And in our text today, we see that one reason why He came. Mark, in particular, is very short and to the point, which is what I appreciate about Mark. Luke, he's a little more extended. Matthew, the same thing. Matthew and Luke both share material that Mark has. So Mark seems to be the most concise. Uh, And therefore, many people think he was one of the first to write. And that may be true, it may not be true, but nonetheless, he is brief. And even in this text today, he's very to the point. He gives us only what is needed in the, the shortest hand form that you can imagine. And the first thing, the first picture, the first scene, if you will, in this short passage here is with Levi by the sea. He says, he went again by the sea. Now, apparently, Jesus had already been teaching. He already had a following that had gathered. I mean, again, we're only in chapter 2, and yet Mark has set up so many things in this short amount of time because, again... He's moving forward very quickly. And so he sets up here that Jesus is already well known. They already know where he goes. And he's walking by the sea teaching them. And many come. 
And as he passes by, he sees Levi, who is the son of Alphaeus. And we learn in the other Gospels that Levi is actually St. Matthew. So this is Matthew. This is the disciple of Jesus, one of the twelve. And then, of course, the one who writes uh, the Gospel according to Matthew. This is his call. Uh, Jesus up front makes the decision uh, to call twelve apostles, twelve men who are designated to carry on the gospel, and Levi is one of the first ones to be called in the Gospel of Mark. The others get called or, or get at least listed here in chapter 3. He sees him sitting at a tax booth. And for the Jew, you have to remember, and I've explained this before and I'll do it again briefly, you have to remember that the tax collector was a hated and despised outcast. Once you became a tax collector, you basically were considered um, outside of the realm of a witness. So you couldn't witness in court. Uh, If you saw something in an event, you wouldn't be trusted. Why? Because tax collectors weren't trusted much like politicians are not trusted, even though they seem to still have much, much pool. Um, and also, you would not have been able to uh, have any friends in the Jewish community because you were taking their money, everyone's money. So all your friends, here you are. I mean, and, and you know, just imagine if one of your friends' job was to take your money. That's, that's not a cool thing. It wasn't just taxes. They skimmed off the top even more than what was needed in order to pay themselves. So Rome basically gave them a job and said, all right, we want this much. Anything else you take off or are are able to get out of people is yours for the taking. And so they did. They they were um, evil men who, who swindled money, I mean, point blank. And so this is why tax collectors and sinners are associated here together is because they are seen together, not only in this text, but elsewhere. Uh, they were recognized as open sinners. It's the way they made their living. Think of someone who makes their living off of some type of sinful activity. And the first one that comes to mind is Jimmy's. Um, we pass it all the time. And he makes a lot of money off of a sinful activity. Um, that's who Jesus goes to lunch with today. And that's the point. These people are hated. They're not, you know, they're not looked at as, as good people. And so he sees... Levi, sitting at his tax booth. He probably made so much money that he had an oceanfront office is the way I like to think of it. You know, here he is sitting in his office, right on the sea, so to speak. That wasn't the context, but just bear with me in our modern thinking. Here he is with the best seat in the house as far as his office is concerned. He sees Jesus. He teaches every day, maybe, coming through there. and He has many followers. He's already aware of Jesus. Uh, if Jesus had already called His disciples, then He's also aware of the people that He's taken money from. Because in Capernaum was a big fishing industry, and so He would have obviously had to tax everything that came in. And so He probably knew Peter. He probably knew uh, John and these other fishermen. And He says to him something just very simple. Mark is very brief again. Follow Me. And He rose and followed Him. The simplicity here is also the beauty. Because when Jesus calls us, it's normally very simple. He doesn't call us to become philosophers. He doesn't call us to become great theologians that have to spend hours with our noses in books. He just says, follow me. And sometimes 
Jesus is just too simple for us. We want something more complicated. We want a checklist. We want some things that we know we can... And instead, he says, relationally, follow me. And that's a little more open. That's a little more simple. And yet, we have an issue with it. I have an issue with it most of the time. I mean, Jesus' simplicity, when He brings the child in front of Him, remember He says, if you're not like a child in the kingdom of God, you won't ever make it. Again, simple and yet complex. It's just like love. Love is something that Jackson knows about. He knows what love is. And yet, try to write about what love is. (laughs) You can spend the rest of your life trying to explain to people. And you'll never get down to the bottom of it. That's the point. There's complexity in the simplicity. He says to him simply, follow me. And it means so much, and yet it means so simple of an action. Follow me means get up and leave your job. He leaves his career. Levi no longer is a tax collector after this. He becomes a disciple of Jesus. Again, it's a simple call, and yet it's very difficult. It's kind of like saying, you know, it's real simple to say, oh yeah, I will love you forever, Jessica, and make these vows, marital vows, you know, for better, for worse. But it's difficult to live that out. Very simple to say. And ultimately, isn't most obedience simple to do? Just don't do that. You know, if we put a chair up here that said, don't touch, and nobody else was in the room, and you all walk by it, you know, it'd probably be one of these things you kind of walk by and say, it doesn't look, you know, kind of sneak a touch in. And yet it's so simple what it says, don't touch. And yet we touch. Because there's something in us that's bent toward doing what we want to do. And yet it's very easy to follow Jesus, just get up and follow Him. And I think that's the message for us this morning, especially as we approach Lent. Deny yourself and follow me. And yet, how hard is it to truly deny ourselves? We don't like it, not for one second. And yet it's a requirement in order to follow Him. Levi had to leave it all, and he did it here. This is his moment of conversion, so to speak. He rose and followed Him. The second scene follows on the heels of this first one and is really set up by the first scene. He now is seen reclining at Levi's house with many tax collectors and sinners. So in the first scene, you have an individual who is told to follow Jesus, and he does. In the second scene, you have many tax collectors and sinners, so multiplied. um, And it says, for there were many who followed him. So you have an individual following, and then you have many who are following, many sinners, many tax collectors who are following. And so this sets up the effect that comes here with uh, verse 16, and the scribes of the Pharisees, which they were basically lawyers. They were experts in the law. That's, that's what that means, scribes of the Pharisees. 
They were Pharisaic, but they were lawyers of Pharisees, just like uh, Paul was. St. Paul, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does does he, talking about Jesus, eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, if you look at this, it's interesting, and you have to always wonder sometimes what's in the mind of the author. Did you see the swap that he makes? Sinners and tax collectors, tax collectors and sinners... And then above that, following back up to verse 15, tax collectors and sinners. Now, why the swap in the middle? Why is the middle one, why does he put sinners first? And enti- Notice what is said when they saw that he was with eating with the sinners and tax collectors. I think what Mark's trying to say is, in the Pharisees' mind, they're not just tax collectors and sinners. Instead, they're sinners and tax collectors. He's emphasizing the sinning part. They, when they see them, they see them as sinners. First and foremost. And so they ask, not Jesus. Notice that in the text. They do not ask Jesus. Instead, they ask Jesus' disciples, why does He eat with these guys? This whole business of reclining is fellowshipping. He's communing with them. And if you think about it and enter into the context here, you realize that the Pharisees always kept a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. The righteous and the sinners. Now, the way they did that was extra law. Not We, said, we would say extra biblical, but... They added laws to the law in order not to break the law. Because they knew if they broke the law, God would discipline them again. Just as He did when He sent them off into captivity. And so the Pharisees devised different laws that you'd have to break through in order to break down to the actual law. Different fences, if you will. And so if you started breaking those, for instance, Jesus eating with sinners was breaking that. He was making Himself unclean. You didn't associate... Uh, with unclean people, with sinners. You didn't. I mean, to associate with sinners meant that you yourself were a sinner. And there is room in the Bible to say, yes, there must be a distinction between what is holy and what is profane, what is clean and what is unclean. But what's fascinating is Jesus is the cleanest of them all. What's even more fascinating here in this text is it's not just the tax collectors or it's not just Levi the individual who's a sinner or these other sinners that Jesus is with, but it's also the Pharisees who are sinners. In other words, everyone here in this text is a sinner except for Jesus. And it reminds me of our our text in Mark 9 where He is transfigured before them on the mountain and it says, "...and Jesus alone remained." Jesus is the only one in this story who is not a sinner. And yet He's associating Himself with sinners. And then it comes down to the climax of this whole thing, what the two scenes have set up, which is the climax in chapter, sorry, in verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, He said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Now, that was a common saying in the first century. It was a poetic way of saying... It was basically an aphorism. It's a maxim. 
is something that is a wise saying. You know, hey, if you, if you uh, don't know you're sick, you don't need a physician. That's the point. And so they would have agreed with this saying that he says up front. And notice this too, he's also agreeing with their distinction between righteous and sinners. Between those who are well and those who are sick. So he's given it to them. If you want to make the distinction, if you think I'm blurring the distinction, I'm not blurring the distinction. I'm doing this on purpose. And he gives us his purpose statement here, which is where I began the sermon. Why did Jesus come? He tells us very clearly, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Their complaint is he has spent time communing, supping with sinners. And if you move forward to the book of Revelation, you'll remember that Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. And whoever will open the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. Now before we go judging the Pharisees, which is our kind of initial thing here, they're judging, but now we want to judge back on them. Before we do that though, think of their mentality. Think if God came now in the flesh. Wouldn't you expect Him to spend time with church people? With His followers? With us? You wouldn't expect Him to go hang out at Jimmy's house today. Yet this is what He chose to do. (laughs) So before we go judging the Pharisees, they have given their lives to the law. They have given their lives to messianic prophecy. And now that the Messiah is here, if He's here, then why is He not spending time with us? It's a telling saying that Jesus gives here. The well have no need of a physician. They don't need me. On first glance, this seems simple again, but it's also a complex statement. Because I think it really hits at home where we live. Most of the time in our lives, we don't feel like we are sick. We don't feel like we need much. Especially in our American life. We are doing pretty well for ourselves. And yet that can become the greatest barrier between us and God. Do you think that if Satan had a plan against you, which he does, by the way, do you think it would be a plan to scare you away from God? Do you think it would be a plan to scare you by His demonic forces or His minions? Or would it be the greatest cover-up? Does he care that you're blessed as long as you don't love God, need God? Could he continue to bless you? Sure. He wants that for you. As long as you are distracted with the things of this world, that's all he cares about. He doesn't need you to be a mass murderer. He doesn't necessarily want that. He doesn't want you to be some rapist or someone who steals a lot of money. If you're just pleasing yourself in this life, that's all he cares about. Why would He not keep the blessings coming? 
It's why Jesus says over and over again, and it always scares me. I don't consider myself rich, but to the rest of the world, to the world's history, oh, middle class, low middle class, we're all kings and queens. And Jesus says, it is very difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because they don't need anything. They feel well. They feel pretty good about their life. And it's scary because most of the time I really do feel pretty good about my life. Comparing my life to other people, I look pretty good. Comparing my life to other people's situation, I look great, especially on TV. Everybody looks messed up on TV. My life's a lot better than that. And yet, my comparison is not NBC. My comparison is not my colleagues. My comparison is not my friends. It's not the addict. My comparison is Jesus Christ. And when I truly begin to hear His call, I'm ashamed at who I am. When I begin to look truly at my sickness, I realize I need a physician. In the end, we will either justify our sin, which is what we normally tend toward, is to say, oh, well, I was tired. Well, I needed this. Well, I I just kind of took a break. Either we justify our sin, which will be condemning to us, We'll be condemned if we justify our sin. Or we allow Jesus to justify our sin. In the end, it's one or the other. Please don't try. You may not think you do, but please don't justify your sin. I've done it. You've done it. We've all done it. Don't. Don't cover up that wound. Instead, go to the doctor. Go to the physician. Expose your weakness. Show Him the illness. Confess your sins to God. Don't justify. Levi rose and followed Him. This morning, I submit to you especially as we approach Lent, if there is a sin in your life, do not justify it. Instead, bring it to God. Rise, confess it, expose it, and allow the healer to work His cure. It may not be overnight. Most sin that has been with you for years won't be taken care of in an hour. Can He do it in an hour? Yes. Maybe He chooses longer in order to prove to you the importance of relationship. C.S. Lewis said, sometimes 
God is not so much concerned with the failure so much as the fact that we get up. In other words, He's not going to take care of it for us sometimes in order to teach us never to give up. Sometimes He'll allow a thorn in our side to remain in order to teach us how much we need God. It's embarrassing. And yet, it's needful. We need God. And most of the time, we just don't feel like it. Think about it. If we open our lives up to Him, just like these sinners He's eating with, He will come and fellowship with us. That's His promise. He came for people like us who are sinners. He didn't come for the ones who think they're righteous, who think they're okay. So I just submit to you again, as we approach Lent, a time of reflection, a time of self-introspection, a time where we lay ourselves out before God and deny ourselves and turn from our wickedness to God... I just submit to you, please be honest with Him. I think of the Matrix a lot. Most, most of my illustrations could be traced back to the Matrix. But uh, before Neo goes in to see Morpheus, they tell him one word of advice. Be honest with Him. He knows more than you can imagine. I can't help but thinking as we approach God, in our praying even, what I find in my life is even when I pray to God, I try to cover myself. I try to come to Him and say, Lord, you know, uh, I just pray that you do this and this. And, you know, of course, forgive me for this, but, but, but just, you know, and try to focus on something else. Be honest with Him. He already knows. He knows more than you can imagine about you. He loves you that much. And then lastly, I'll just go to Mark 8, where Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus says, in Mark 8, He says, If you want to be My disciple, do these three things. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Lent is about self-denial. Now, how many times in the past week have you denied yourself something on purpose? I mean something that you love, not just for maybe dietary purposes, which we all try to do, especially as summer approaches. I mean things that you enjoy. Things that other people would look at and say, oh, no, no, there's no need for you to take that out of your life. What does that harm? Choose something in Lent that is going to cost you. It cost Levi his job to follow Christ. I'm not saying quit your job, especially in our economy. But I am saying, do whatever it takes. Cut it off. Pluck out the eye. Jesus uses very strong terminology when He 
talks about sin. Do whatever it takes to follow Him. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. The thing that can kill you. The thing you will die on. The thing that Jesus died on. Take up your cross and follow Me. Where did He go? He went to go and die. Jesus bids us to come and die to our way of life because in dying, that is the only life. Just like a seed. If a seed remains out here on this podium, it'll just remain a seed. Because when it's thrown into the ground, the soil germinates the seed and it becomes something more than a seed. Most of us want to hold on to our life. Cover ourselves. And we live lives of protection. Do something that is faith-based. Have you ever made a decision to give beyond your means? Have you ever made a decision as a family to do something that is beyond you? If not, you've lived a life of protection and covering. And God is saying, step out, rise up and follow me and I'll take you further than you ever thought possible in your life. I can do things in your life that you never thought possible. Give you things, gifts of the Spirit. If you'll only repent and turn, confess your sins, deny yourself, follow Jesus today. What better day to hear His call? And the first step is realizing that you're a sinner. He doesn't call the righteous, but sinners.